It is tourney time. We have the 68-team field. Does not include Texas. Does not include Indiana. It does not include NC State, and they're not happy about it. Wolfpack not happy about it at all. They released a statement on Sunday night that very conveniently picked out the favorable metrics and kind of forgot that their non-conference schedule is pitiful. It's worse than an NAIA team. They lost to some terrible teams. They did not beat very many good teams. You know, all the good numbers look really damn good until you compare them to the bad numbers, right? So the Wolfpack, not happy about their exclusion from the tournament, but I am happy that you're here. Andrew Doughty on the High Motor Podcast, on the Hero Sports Podcast Network. Great show today. Uh, it wouldn't be appropriate to have a crap show. The the week of the best four-day stretch of the sports season. First on the show, what I'm going to do, I have a couple things I want to touch on. One thing in particular that really got me going on Sunday night, I haven't shaken it yet, so I want to talk about that. And then the second thing, something tourney committee-related, selection-related. And then after that, we're going to have a couple guests on the show. First, Matt Lango, Colgate head coach, Raiders in the tournament for the first time in 23 years. First time there since 1996. He's a little bit busy this week, but he is going to give us 10 minutes to chat. And then after him, my old friend Chase Kitty will hop on, talk some betting strategy for this week, games he likes, games he doesn't like, how he parlays games how he attacks the first weekend of the NCAA tournament. And at the end, I'm going to give you a few predictions. I know some of you don't care. I am 100% with you. I was actually just on another podcast on Sunday night. It's called the 1012 Podcast. And we were briefly talking about how nobody really cares about my predictions, about your predictions. It's kind of like a fantasy football team. I don't care about your fantasy football team. I care about mine. If you want to explain to me why you think that... Murray State is a terrible matchup for Marquette and why the races are going to win. Throw some numbers at me. Throw a real argument at me. Don't just cite the, the 12-5 upset numbers. We all know those numbers. You can see those numbers. 12 seeds are 16-24 and 24 against the 5 in the last 10 years. We get that it's a common upset. We all know that the 12-5 upset comes often. So just like I don't care about your fantasy football team, I understand if you don't care about predictions. If you want some predictions, stick around after Chase We'll run through that. I'll give you some outliers, some upset picks, and a few other things. After that, no movie of the week this week. Got too much tourney talk. Uh, hey, also, by the way, check out last week's episode if you did not. Awesome show on NCAA tournament buzzer beaters. I talked with three guys that have a very unique piece in history. I talked with Jamel Martinez, former Kentucky player. He was there for the... Uh, Christian Leitner shot back in 92. He actually had fouled out of the game, so he wasn't technically on the court, but he was on the bench for that 92 shot. He talked about uh, that sequence, the, the the moments afterward, the days afterward, how he kind of processed that. I also talked with Keith Carter, former Ole Miss player, for the 98 Bryce Drew shot against Valpo. And then Isaiah Taylor, former Texas guard. Uh, he had made the bucket against Northern Iowa uh, three years back in 2016. Then you remember Paul Jesperson hit the half-court shot in the first round to send Northern Iowa to the second round. So go back and check those out. iTunes, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever podcast app you're using. Before Matt Langle hops on, I mentioned two things quickly. Number one, Montana State. And this got me fired up because on Sunday, Montana State announced that uh, head coach Brian Fish was going to be fired. They tweeted it out. The headline, well, I guess they didn't announce that he was fired. They first tried to spin it, and this is what got me. Their tweet and the headline linking from the tweet said, and I quote, 
Brian Fish leaving MSU. That would imply that he's leaving voluntarily, right? I'm not crazy here. If you say Brian Fish leaving MSU, that you are assuming when you're reading that that he is either maybe leaving for another job, he's stepping down, he's taking a year off, and I'll talk about why that might be the case in just a second. But then when you click it, the statement from Athletic Director Leon Costello, I'm just going to read the first part of it. He says, After a thorough review of the men's basketball program, today I met with Brian and informed him of my decision not to renew his contract. I also thank Brian for his years of service to Montana State University. And here's the part of it. A couple of months ago, Brian Fish lost his daughter. His daughter passed away. And I understand that that doesn't preclude you from being fired. Now, that's an extremely fine line. I'm not sitting here saying that Montana State cannot fire somebody that, that's had a tough uh, situation in the family, like a death, like a sickness, something like that. I'm not going to do that. I'm not even going to talk about that. I'm not even going to go anywhere near that line. And I understand that he could be fired. The record hasn't been great. It hasn't been horrible. He went 15-17 uh, and 17 this season and won 65 games in five years. Always kind of in the middle of the pack in the big sky. No uh, NCAA tournament berths. Never finished better than sixth in the big sky. But with a situation like that, why can't you do it with a little bit of respect? And I... This is coming from a guy. I think that the parting of the ways things, you know when you always see the headlines and the tweets that... They're parting ways with whatever coach. UNLV is parting ways with Marvin Menzies. Cal Poly is parting ways with Joe Claro. They got fired. I don't know why we have to do that. I think it's stupid, but if schools really think that that's the right PR play, whatever, just go for it. But saying a coach is leaving, you are pushing on that he is leaving voluntarily. You're pushing on the people who are reading this. You're spinning that. He's fired. That's not the right play at all, especially in that case especially in the case of a coach who's had a really rough few months, and now you're spinning it like he's leaving him. You fired him. Leon Costello, you fired him. You said this was your decision to fire him. So why are you spinning this? Why are you spinning this like he's voluntarily leaving for another job, maybe taking a year off to to be with his family and then jumping back into coaching in a year or two? Why can't we just show this guy some respect after a brutal, tough year that a lot of us can't even understand what it would be like to go through something like that? You're even saying in your statement how dedicated he was to the university, to the program. Why can't Leon Costello and Montana State show their dedication to decency, to to a little bit of a, a courtesy here, some respectability? Don't spin it. This is a tough decision for Leon Costello. I don't doubt that at all. Again, I'm not saying he shouldn't be fired. But a guy that's gone through that over the last couple of months, just say he was fired. Don't spin it. That was the first thing. Number two... Regarding the selection process, I don't think people understand that there are no hard and fast rules for the selection committee. They're selecting 68 teams out of 353. I know some of those teams aren't eligible for the tournament, but you're basically selecting one out of every six teams from this massive pool of 350 teams. There aren't really any rules. They have different metrics and they have different processes that they go with. I wish there was more transparency. Honestly, I don't know if that would help things. I think there'd probably be more outrage if everybody knew exactly what they were looking at. But there aren't really any rules in that there is nothing written down that says teams outside the net top 75 aren't eligible. Or like teams under 500 in a conference play aren't eligible. Or teams 500 overall aren't eligible. Texas didn't get in, but if they had gotten in, which I think for the record would have been a poor decision, would have been a wrong decision to put them in over a Belmont or a Temple or one of those teams that got in, 
but there are no rules that say they couldn't be in. So if you're sitting here saying that we can't put a team in that's 500, why? Well, like who's who's making that rule? Do you want that to be a rule? Great. If that's a rule, sure, we can follow it. But there's no rule. Like, this isn't the CBI where they have to have a 500 record. And I've talked a lot about this for the College Football Playoff Committee. People will come out and say that you can't leave, that with, the, with the UCF argument, you can't leave a zero-loss team, undefeated team out. Or you can't have a two-loss team in. Or if it comes to it, you can't have a three-loss team. Like, who is saying that? That's just the rule that you're making up. If you want that to be the rule, that's fine. And what's actually kind of funny about this, kind of talking about the CBI thing with the 500, a buddy was telling me the other day that the NCAA golf tournament a tournament required about three or four years ago or something recently, they made a requirement all teams must be 500. So literally in the middle of a season, if a team isn't 500 or if they have a chance of going under 500 with tournaments coming up, they're just going to adjust their schedule mid-season. mid-season. Isn't that just bizarre? I go back to it really quickly. This is a complex process for the selection committee. That's why nobody knows the team. There are tons and tons of metrics, tons and tons of things to look at. It's not a simple, we had this net. We had a net of just making it up 38. Why didn't we get in? That's just one piece of it. And I actually kind of feel bad for the NCAA on this, which is weird. I never feel bad for the NCAA. But the the NCAA never said, or I guess the selection committee never said that the, the net would be this metric that would determine everything. Yeah, they, they pumped it and promoted it as this improved RPI, which anything could have been an improved RPI because RPI sucked. It sucked for the last 35 years. I don't know why it was ever even introduced. I don't know why it was ever even used. So I understand that the net you know, pushed this, excuse me, the NCAA pushed this net as being a great metric, and we still don't even know what it's compiled of. They still haven't released the algorithm. doesn't seem like they're going to. But the NCAA did not say that the net would be this end-all, be-all metric. So people need to stop acting like it is going to be. There is no simple formula for putting teams in the NCAA tournament. We're going to look at the South Region, Columbus, Ohio, Friday early game, 7 seed Cincinnati versus the 10 Iowa, number 2 Tennessee versus the 15 seed Colgate, the Raiders making their first tourney appearance in 23 years, and Colgate head coach Matt Langle is on the show now. Coach, your program's last tourney appearance was back in March 1996 versus the 1 seed UConn. What were you doing back in 1996? I was in my senior year of high school, so I, I think I probably uh, called in sick because I was, uh, uh, you know, committed to go to the University of Pennsylvania, and March Madness was such a huge part of my life. So either it was, I was either home watching the games on TV, or you know, had my uh, had my ear ear my earphones in, like you know, trying to sneak the radio broadcast in class. Fast forward to 2011 now, you take the Colgate job after some years on the staffs at Penn and Temple, and you're taking over a program that had really struggled lately. It had won 10 or fewer games in the five of the six years before you arrived, but what about this Colgate job drew you? Yeah, I mean, it, it's so hard to be a Division One head men's basketball coach. There's, um, you know, it's there, there's only a handful of these jobs relative to you know, the number of people that want them. So as a pretty young guy, just 34 years old, the good fortune of being a part of some successful programs at Penn and Temple, as you mentioned. And, um, you know, my brother graduated Colgate at 2004. Uh, Obviously, I have some academic background having attended and coached at Penn. And, um, you know, the fit at Colgate was one where uh, they were interested in me and uh, it was an opportunity for 
for me as a young head coach to go and start to uh, you know find my way and, and and try and build a program and um, you know so you know really the opportunity and the the mission of the institution and uh, being able to coach true student athletes was something that was very appealing to me. So when you take this job, like we mentioned, Colgate hadn't been to the, the tournament since 1996, 23 years. When you take that job, are you looking ahead saying this is a program that can go to the NCAA tournament, whether that's in three years, five years, and ten years, or are you kind of just taking it step by step and not even thinking that far down the road? Yeah, I think much more the latter. Uh, I'm, I'm a process-oriented guy. Uh, I'm always, you know, in, in my own life trying to improve, whether that's as a as a father and a husband and a friend and a, and a basketball coach, and I, I wanted the same for our program. We're just going to kind of see where we are now and, and try and be better tomorrow than we are today and at the end of every year see what we can add to our program, see what we can change, uh, see how we can grow and, uh, and and get better. So, you know, that that was more my, my focus at that point. I, I believe fundamentally that if you if you have that mindset and you're able to, kind of keep keep moving up a rung on the ladder uh, every step, not that you're not going to get knocked back down a couple times, but if you have that mentality, then, you know, at the end of the day, the results will take care of themselves. And now eight years later, you're dancing after winning the Patriot. You get Tennessee on Friday. What were your first thoughts when you were watching the selection show and that matchup came through? Uh, you know, just, I, I, the, you know, you're going to play a really good team. So um, when 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 the matchup came through that it was Tennessee, you know, we, we hadn't been, we've been off since uh, last Wednesday when our, our conference um, championship game was. So you've been able to watch some games on TV, the Big Ten tournament, the ACC tournament, the SEC tournament. You kind of got a sense that you're going to play one of those teams uh, that are towards the top of those leagues. So, um, you know, I did get a chance to watch Tennessee, just um, how tough they are and how together they are. It'll be a, a, a fantastic challenge for sure. Um, and, you know, you just, you, you just, the, the excitement is just rushing through your veins, though. When you, when you see your name go up there, you're not really thinking that much about the, the opposition. You mentioned being off since last Wednesday, and you don't play it until Friday here. It's looking at about a week-and-a-half layoff. Is that layoff any concern to you when you go a full season without having something like that usually? Uh, yeah, I mean, yes and no. Uh, obviously, you never you never want to be off and break the rhythm of, of your team, especially one like ours that's you know coming off uh, or, or has an 11-game winning streak going. Uh, but at the same time, it gives us some extra time to – uh, prepare. We got a couple guys like most teams that are banged up with some injuries, so a couple days, you know, off without practicing, you know, lets them, you know, recover. And the reality is, with these the guys that that we have have never been on this stage. They've never been in the NCAA tournament, so you know, there's you're not going to be in your normal rhythm anyway. So hopefully, we can, you know, adjust to the to the game that we're playing on Friday and and find a rhythm in that game and uh, and and play our best basketball. So you get a Tennessee team that's coming off a couple of interesting games. They come off that loss to Auburn in the SEC Championship game, basically a blowout 20-point loss, but then a day earlier they beat Kentucky. So two really contrasting games there in their last two games. How do you prepare for a game uh, facing a team that had just two very different performances coming into it? Yeah, I, I think you prepare for the best version of the team that you're going to play. And, uh, you know, their best ver version was being number one in the country for, for a chunk of the season. Uh, they've got, you know, great talent, but just as much as their talent, they're really well coached and they're disciplined and they've got some experience and some veterans. And so, 
Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, they're as good as any team in the country, and uh, you certainly got to prepare for, for their the best version of them as you try and, um, you know, find a way to be competitive in the game. Getting your team ready, you know, talking to them this week, how much are you going to bring up upsets in the past? Are you guys going to talk about last year UMBC uh, beating Virginia? Are you going to talk about Norfolk State? Are you going to talk about Lehigh? Are you going to talk about Hampton beating Iowa State way back? How much of those upsets are you using to to kind of uh, not necessarily motivate, to, but to get your guys in the right mindset that, that upsets do happen? Well, I mean, again, the guys, the guys that we have, like most guys across the country, grow up dreaming of this opportunity. You know, it's when they're in their backyard or in their high school gym, early morning or late night, whatever it is. These are the moments that, that are motivating you to, to do your work. So uh, I, I think they know of those circumstances. What we'll really talk about is, is our circumstance and, and what will be required for us um, to to be one of those teams and how we're going to have to play our best game against uh, a really good Tennessee team. For fans looking at your 215 matchup in the South region, maybe they haven't seen you guys play much this season. What can they expect from your team? Yeah, I mean, I, I think for most teams that are, you know, where we are as a 15 seed, sometimes you're undersized. I think, you know, we're not. We've got two uh, senior centers that are every bit of six eight six nine, and then we've got a, our, the player of the year in our league who's a transfer from Northwestern. Actually, you know, plays the forward spot for us. He's six ten. We've got a small forward who's six seven, and our a freshman guard who's six five. So, um, you know, we have some pretty good size uh, uh, on our team. I think what I'm most proud of is how we share the basketball. I mean, we don't have. Uh, five guys in double figures like Tennessee, but we do have three, and we've had a number of guys step up and um, and have big games for us. And you know, we've assisted a, a, good, a good deal on the, a good percentage of times on the field goals that we make. And like to think we can spread out the opposition and have a number of uh, three-point shooters on the court at one time. How are you going to sleep this week? You guys a little bit restless before you leave for Columbus? Uh, are you leaving on Thursday? Uh, yeah, I think we'll, we'll probably leave on Wednesday with all the responsibilities that you have uh, the day before the game uh, and with us being an afternoon game in Columbus there on Thursday. Uh, but it'll be nice. We were on break, on spring break last week, so our, our students weren't on campus, so it'll be kind of nice for our guys to get back in their normal rhythm with class and uh, be around their peers early this week and as we start our preparation for for Tennessee, we'll uh, we'll start to be locked in and working hard on a, on a game plan of, of trying to execute. Coach, I really appreciate the time this week. Congrats again on the Patriot League Championship. Uh, safe travels and best of luck versus Tennessee on Friday. All right, thanks a million for having me. Chase Kitty on the High Motor Podcast. He's here to win you some money. You know what, Chase? Actually, before we get started, I was thinking about you the other day. Sincerely, I was. Do you know why? I don't know, but I hope it's romantic. Um, no, it's not. But I was watching Molly's game. I had seen the movie before, but the missus hadn't, so we fired it up. And I was thinking about you. You know, the gambling, the drinking, the whole throwing your life away with bad decisions. That's kind of the whole Chase Kitty trifecta, isn't it? And you haven't even gotten to Aaron Sorkin yet, so I mean, really, it all ties together. Well, that's that, that's seriously why I was thinking about you, because you, <laughs> like me, were both big Aaron Sorkin fans, and we haven't chatted that much lately. Uh, we haven't chatted since that, that random rumor that Sorkin could fire up Newsroom again. I know we both enjoyed that show quite a bit. We were probably in the minority on that, 
or maybe not really the minority, but we were definitely on the the thumbs up side of it because those two sides are very divided. Do you want to see Newsroom come back? I'd like to see it. I'd be curious what they do with it. It's not necessarily that I want to see it come back. I felt like they just left too much on the table when they ended it. I mean, the, right. I, I thought after the first season they really found their stride, but the third season was like six episodes long. It was a good season. It was tight. It was well put together, but... I just wanted to see more back then when it was on, and now, I don't know, it just, I feel like going back to it would feel different than them having concluded it more naturally. Yeah, that's a good point, because it does feel like it was rushed, and after they kind of got over that, that, I love Sorkin, but he tends to put in some unnecessary, stupid, meaningless fringe drama, and that kind of got there in the first season, With and they Jim really, and, yeah. yeah, and then they really fired up, I love the storylines in the second season, but I'd be curious... I want to go back and see when they decided to actually cancel the show because I feel like if they would have known in season two that they had three or four more seasons left, I think two could have been even better, and I think three could have been even better. I I wouldn't mind seeing it come back. It's kind of like how I feel about this supposed Breaking Bad movie. I don't know if I want it to come back because Breaking Bad was left in such a perfect spot, but I'd be lying if I said I wasn't curious about it. Yeah, it's just I'm I'm, I'm constantly – because you see so many things remade nowadays, right? And you know that the game is basically, I'm not going to like this as much as I want it. I'm not going to like the remake as much as I liked the original. So I'm torn between, yeah, I want to spend more time with those characters and also knowing it's probably not going to be as good if they go back to it. So maybe let's just let it lie. Let's talk March Madness here. My first question for you, sir, do you bet any futures? And let's ask this in two ways. First of all, do you bet on any, like, let's say, regional champs? And then second, do you bet on any national champs? Obviously, after now that we have the bracket out, do you bet on any of those guys right now before the tournament's actually started? I try not to, just because it's it can go in so many different directions. I'm not a huge futures guy. Usually, usually if I'm going to bet futures, I bet baseball season win totals or football season win totals. But the thing about betting regionals is you're either sticking with a number one seed that seems pretty solid but you're paying extra juice to get, and then crazy stuff can happen like last year with Virginia, or you're just taking a flyer on somebody that has a decent shot. I I think the best thing I can think of when when you think about futures and odds and trying to get ROI is if you go back a couple years ago to uh, UConn and Kemba Walker, I had a good feeling that maybe there was value there on a three seed coming out of their region. So in a situation like that, Maybe you want to you find value in a specific team in a specific moment, but year to year, I don't necessarily bank on trying to invest in futures just because I find them unpredictable in basketball. Let's talk about the twelve five game. It gets so much attention every single year, and, and rightfully so. Um, I just mentioned this earlier on the pod. We've all seen the numbers. Twelve seeds are averaging one point six wins over the last. Um, excuse me, over the last 10 years, 16 total 12-5 upsets in those last 10 years. How do you approach those games each season, obviously specific to this season, and do you ever see any opportunity there where people are so aggressive on the 12-5 because we talk about it so much that you could kind of squeak in and make a little bit of money off of those? It does feel like the 12-5 has sort of jumped the shark at this point where it's gotten to the point where people go into their bracket. If you take the, the hard gambling aspect out of it for a second – People go into their bracket going, okay, what 12 am I going to pick? And whenever you are, you know the answer already and you're trying to figure out how to get there, 
rather than arriving there organically. You're always in a tough spot when it comes to gambling. So there, there is a little bit of, of overvalue placed on some of those 12-5 things. I, a lot of people are talking about how 6-11 is the new 12-5. I look at some of these 13 and 14 seeds. I think that's where you can find some interesting value. I, I do think there's a couple spots late down the bracket this year that you can maybe take advantage of. But yeah, those those 5-12s, I, it's, it's hit or miss. The only one I really like last, uh, this year is actually I like the 5 seed a lot because I, I think the 12 seed's being overvalued. When you look at this Wisconsin-Oregon game, Oregon's the 12 seed, and they're actually favored to beat Wisconsin right now. They're a one-point favorite, and I think that's a weird overcorrection. I guess it could be a trap line, uh, and, and maybe that's a signal for people to stay away or bet Oregon just because it's such an odd occurrence. But it does feel more of a statement about, oh, Oregon's hot, and one of those things where people always want to bet the hot team that wins their conference tournament or whatever. I think I'd rather stay away from that. I think I'd rather stick to Wisconsin, the team that I know, that I trust, and that is for some reason getting a point, even though they're a top-20 team, uh, according to the seeds. Well, yeah, especially with Oregon. I mean, a SWAC team could get hot and probably win the Pac-12 tournament this year, so I'm not sure how much stock we actually want to put into it. Going back to what you said at the beginning there, I mentioned that over the last 10 years, 12 seeds are averaging 1.6 wins per season, so it doesn't seem like... You really look at that math too much. We were going through the 12-5 the and saying, okay, over the last 10 years, an average of 1.6. Let's just make it easy and round it up to two. Two of those teams are going to win. You're not as concerned about that. You're just looking at the line specifically and almost taking the seeding out of it. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it's. I think the key thing to take away, if you take away nothing else from, from, from listening to podcasts and gambling podcasts about March Madness, you almost have to separate the idea of filling out a bracket and being successful in a bracket pool from gambling on games individually and, and placing straight bets. Because they're almost completely separate and they're driven by different types of uh, mechanics. When I'm going into a bracket pool, I'm trying to take calculated risks and minimize the number of crazy picks I'm going to make, right? If somebody, if I'm in a bracket pool and somebody picks Montana to go to the final four and it ends up happening, congrats, you're going to win the pool. But I would much rather not bet on Montana to go to the final four. And statistically, I'm going to have a much better chance. You, you want to minimize risk versus betting on games where you actually want to find places where the risk might be worth taking. You know, some of these uh, some of these double-digit seed games, they're getting so many points that the risk is kind of worth it. I think you look at a, a you look at a game like Virginia Tech and St. Louis. I think Virginia Tech has laying way too many points. There's only ten double-digit favorites in the entire first couple days of the tournament, and Virginia Tech is a nine and a half point favorite. And that seems like too much for me for a team that's good but hasn't necessarily proven itself in March and is playing against a, a team and a program that's used to being in this tournament in St. Louis. That feels like way too many points to give up in a matchup like this, so I like taking the risk with a double-digit seed, whereas in a bracket, I would never probably pick St. Louis to beat Virginia Tech. What do you, I know you do a, you break down a lot of numbers and you have access to a lot of data on stuff like this. How do you approach this 
Uh, let me think of a good way to a ask this question. So all these games are neutral site games. Every single game will be played with a neutral site. A little bit different, like, for example, if KU were to make the Sweet 16 and Elite 8, they are playing in Kansas City. That's almost a home game. I don't know if you want to address that at all. But historically speaking, how do these neutral site games compare to uh, at least the data behind it? How does the data behind a neutral site game compare to a regular season game? Uh, let's take any game. For example, Minnesota-Louisville, they're playing in Des Moines on Thursday. Obviously a neutral site game, a little bit closer to Minnesota than Louisville, but I'm not sure how that much that matters in the whole neutral site conversation. So that's a neutral site game, Minnesota-Louisville in Des Moines. If this was a a neutral site game, let's just say a month ago, for whatever reason, they put a neutral site Louisville-Minnesota game in the middle of the ACC and Big Ten schedule. Does your data um, kind of say the same things about a neutral site game in the regular season versus the tournament? I don't know what the net, the, there's necessarily a data conclusion here, but what my overall conclusion would be is that a regular season game is way different than a postseason game. I, I think you might want to take geography into account when you're talking about the regular season, when you're talking about an uneven amount of time between games. Maybe somebody played two days ago. Maybe it's been five days for the other team. Maybe one team, it, it's more convenient for them to play at a neutral site than the other. I mean, everything's considered a neutral site, but I've seen you know, games that are 30 minutes. I, I think West Virginia played BYU at neutral site Washington, D.C. a couple years ago. Like that, I don't know how much of a neutral site that is for BYU. Uh, so that, that's an example. Uh, in the regular season, I think I take some of that into account a little more. In the postseason, I feel like the overriding feeling is, look, we're going to win this game where our season's over. And so I think that sort of overrides some of the secondary concerns you might have with geography or things of that nature. It's more about where a team is in March and how they're feeling and how they're playing versus some of the other stuff. Let's get a little bit more specific and look at some of these first-round matchups. Just running through um, numbers here on Bovada, for example. Uh, Marquette is a 4.5-point favorite over Murray State. Nevada, 2-point favorite over Florida. What first-round lines uh, are really getting your, your blood pumping this year? And to be clear, we're looking at this late on Monday night. So these could change a little bit. They're not going to change dramatically. But when we reference lines here in the next... 5, 10, 15 minutes, whatever. We're talking Monday night. I'm using Bovada. I think, Chase, you can confirm if you're using Bovada too. But what first-round lines are really uh, interesting to you this year? Yeah, I was looking at Bovada when I did a lot of this uh, these write-ups. And it's funny, the two games you mentioned, because we did not talk at all about games but, but, uh, before we started shooting this podcast. But you named two of the games that are on my list. Uh, Murray State suffers uh, this year from the... Small school that has a player everybody knows about problem. Uh, so Murray State's going to be a popular upset pick because I, I think every year there are a few teams that maybe aren't Power 5 schools, but for whatever reason they're a known commodity. They almost become a public team. Uh, so it becomes a trendy upset pick, and inevitably there are a few trendy upset picks that are all talk and then the favorite ends up winning. And so Murray State Marquette is one of those games I think this year where because Murray State is a known commodity, people are, people are going to be inclined to pick them. But in reality, Marquette's a really good team. They've been pretty consistent for most of the year. Uh, one of the two best schools in the Big East. And I think four and a half is a pretty doable line uh, in, in that situation. So I actually like Marquette not only to advance, but to cover that spread uh, as a favorite. That do, you think, do you think if let me interrupt you really quick? Do you think sure. if so you you talked about you know John Morant on Murray State? Do you think if Morant or Morant wasn't on Murray State 
or even if it was just another similar player that had his type of impact that wasn't considered a top five NBA draft pick, what do you think that line would be? And to be very clear what type of question I'm asking, I'm saying it's the exact same team, but Morant is not a top five NBA prospect. Maybe he's not even an NBA prospect at all, but it's the exact same type of player, the exact same production, the exact same team. What do you think that line would be if they did not have that type of hype? I think it would be closer to 10 I'd say probably really? in the seven and a half to eight range, yeah. Because I, I, I've mentioned this before with you, but it's important to remember when point spreads are set, they are not trying to set the exact, they're not trying to equalize the game. They're trying to get equal action on both sides. And you know that Murray State is going to be a, a public darling because people know about this team, even though they're a low major. People like to feel smart, you know? People like to feel like they know a little something that they're on the inside. And so when you pick teams like Murray State, I I think subconsciously what people are doing are going, yeah, I know basketball, I know Murray State, I know who this is. And that has a factor, I believe, in some of these lines. I think that when, uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I'll probably look them up later tonight, Uh, the early returns on how many tickets are on each side of that Murray State-Marquette game. I won't be surprised if there's more tickets on Murray State, even if there's more money on Marquette, because I'm betting the Sharps are betting Marquette. What are their first-round games you really love this season? I like ODU a lot. They're catching 12 points, and they are playing uh, Purdue. So that's a 314 matchup. I think Purdue is a little overvalued here, uh, not just in brand name. It's a program that they're usually pretty good every year. They're an above-average Big Ten school most years, but they never really go on a big run in the tournament. Um, So there's that. And then ODU is catching 12 points, which is an awful lot for a first-round game, even in a 14-3 matchup. I mentioned earlier there's only 10 double-digit favorites in the entire first round of this tournament. There's only 10, and that's one of them, is Purdue and ODU. I'm not necessarily saying ODU upsets Purdue, but I think they stay within 12. And, and, you know, ODU, not recently necessarily, because their basketball program was down there for a little while after they left the CAA, went to Conference USA. Uh, But that is a program that's won before, and I think they have a a formula that they've sort of gotten back to that I, I think can win again. So I do like them to cover that spread, and I'm not ruling out them advancing outright. Uh, I think if we can talk about uh, another, I I mentioned St. Louis, uh, Villanova. I think Villanova-St. Mary is another one of these games where people are predisposed to think that the team that comes into the tournament hot is going to be the one that wins a couple games and stays hot. It's that old bias that what has already been happening will continue to happen. Uh, in reality, there's a lot more instances of teams that got hot and or won a conference tournament and then came into March and flamed out. Uh, you know, it's for every one 2011 UConn team, there's 20 more teams that got hot, won a conference tournament, and then lost the first game that they were in, right? So one of the examples I'm looking at is Villanova-St. Mary's. A lot of people are picking St. Mary's. It's a trendy pick to upset Villanova because they beat Gonzaga in the West Coast Conference Final. In reality, I think Villanova is, even if they're not as good as they've been the last two years, I think they're a lot better than St. Mary's, and the spread in this game is only six. So you're not having to swallow a ton of points. I think Villanova probably 
sort of blows it open late and probably coasts to an 11 or 12 point win. So I like six there. Uh, Kansas, Northeastern, there's another sort of trendy upset pick, Northeastern. I don't think Northeastern, uh, I don't know that Northeastern can hang with this Kansas team. I think they shoot it really well when they want to, and Northeastern, I think, maybe hangs with them for a half. Uh, I, I think about looking at the Northeastern first half spread, but over the course of the game, I think Kansas probably covers that number. Uh, I mentioned Wisconsin. Uh, Georgia State plus 12 is worth a look. Again, that's a lot of points against, uh, I think they're playing Houston. And Houston, I don't know that they're a deserving three seed. They're a good team. How much have they been challenged? Can you trust that they're going to blow open a game in the NCAA tournament after the schedule they played in a non-Power 5 league? I don't know. 12 points seems like a lot for Georgia State, especially a team with a coach that has been here before and done this before and advanced in the tournament before with Ron Hunter. So uh, that's a couple that I would look at, uh, particularly the dogs. Yeah, I think I I love Iowa State. I know I'm I'm kind of on the fringe. They are playing hot, and I I am careful with that, like you had mentioned. But I like that Lindell, um, Lindell, Lindell, excuse me, Lindell Wigginton is healthy. He's coming back. I think that Iowa State is looking. They're potentially playing a Houston team that looked terrible in the American Conference Championship game. And Iowa State could have a really good chance to make it to the Sweet 16. One uh, note before we move on to parlays. You mentioned the Old Dominion. Just refreshed it. That's actually up to 13 now. So if you liked it at 12, that's going up to 13. We'll see kind of where that settles at. Uh, but Old Dominion right now, a 13-point underdog against the three-seed Purdue, before we go here, let's talk parlays. I know that you and I have talked about parlay strategy a lot in the past for different sports. So my first question is, is there anything unique about March Madness parlay strategies, specifically for the first couple of days of the tourney when we do have those 32 games over two days? And then I know you also do a 2K parlay each week of the college football season, throw down a small bet, 5, 10, 15 bucks, whatever, on uh, 10, 12, 15 games in hopes, in hopes of winning that $2,000 ticket, which you did once last year. Are you twice, do that? twice last year. You did that twice last year. So you're yeah. a rich man with that West Virginia over wins bet. You, you cleaned up pretty well in the college football season. I did. I was about 15, 15 grand. So are you doing, bets, yeah. you doing a, a 2K parlay bet for this first weekend of the tournament? Not by my own formal rules of it's a $5 bet that pays about $2,000, but I did put together uh, something of a, a bet in that philosophy. I put together uh, Yale, Murray State, ODU, and Liberty. They're both double-digit seeds, and if you bet all four to win, not to cover, but to win outright, a $20 bet wins you $5,560. Run through those again. You have Murray State, Liberty, Yale, and who was the fourth? And ODU. And those are just to cover. It, no, those are to win. I'm outright. sorry, those are to so win outright. That there would be some, you know, craziness for that to happen. But I mean, four double-digit seeds winning in the first round is certainly not unheard of. I'd say actually, it's probably likely when you consider how many double-digit seeds there are. The point here is not necessarily that you should bet those four specific teams because I've already talked about how I like Marquette to beat Murray State. Uh, The point is if you can find double-digit seeds that are getting decent returns on the money line because you know there's going to be upsets, right? That You ask what makes this different. March Madness is different because you know there will be upsets. So if you can just pick a couple and get lucky – you can get a really big payout if you string the right ones together. 
Chase Kitty, hit him up on Twitter at Chase A Kitty K I D D Y. He will respond to you. He will talk betting with you. He will talk whiskey, Aaron Sorkin, anything. Send him March Madness questions. Check out his podcast, Master of None. Master of None podcast from Chase Kitty. Sir, thank you very much for the time. You enjoy yourself this weekend. You too, man. Okay, like I said, let's roll through some predictions quickly. Uh, first and second round predictions only. I'll be back next week. We'll talk Sweet 16 Elite Eight going into the Final Four. My first bracket, and, and this could adjust here as we go. I'm sitting here uh, late on Monday. I have all the top seeds making it to the Sweet 16, uh, but I actually have two number two seeds losing in the second round. I have ten, uh, excuse me, Tennessee losing to Cincinnati, Kentucky losing to the 10 seed Seton Hall down there in the Midwest. I, I know it's never going to the Cincinnati-Tennessee matchup. I know it's never smart to bet on Cincinnati come tourney time. Uh, under Mick Cronin, in the last six years, just three wins. So just one tourney win every two years, the last six seasons for Cincinnati. But I'm going to roll the dice on the Bearcats and say we see more of what they did versus Houston in the American Championship game than what we saw throughout the season, a little bit of inconsistency there. I don't think this is as good of a Cincinnati team as we've seen in the past but it's still a great defensive team, probably one of the 10 or 15 best defensive teams in the country. I think they can really frustrate Tennessee. And then Seton Hall going down to the Midwest. Obviously, I have Seton Hall over Wofford in that 7-10 matchup in the Midwest. And then I have Seton Hall over Kentucky. I really like what the Pirates have done the last month or so. You know, like most teams in that spot, in that 8, 9, 10, 11 seed, kind of that right and not necessarily on the bubble, but they were in that tier right above the bubble, that 8-10 to 10 seed range. They don't really do anything well like a lot of those other teams. They're really average in both areas on both, end, both ends. Uh, but they also don't do anything that, that poorly, and they're holding opponents to under 43% shooting on the year. I think they could, just like I said, Cincinnati could frustrate Tennessee. I think Seton Hall, if they get past Wofford, big if there, if they get past Wofford, I'm going to take Seton Hall over Kentucky. Uh, let's see. Let's go over to let's go over to the West. I actually have Vermont over Florida State. Now that Florida State is going to be a pretty popular pick, I think it's an extremely weak region. Uh, I do like Michigan coming out of there. I haven't made that pick yet, but I do like Michigan coming out of the West. But I think Florida State things have set up pretty well for them. But I have Vermont coming out of that first round game in that that four thirteen game. Anthony Lamb and Vermont, they're playing just. I don't know if you want to call it pissed off basketball. It, it seems like they're playing pissed off basketball after losing uh, the the America East Championship last year to UMBC in the last second shot. And then I have them playing Murray State in the second round. So I have Murray State over Marquette, mostly because I just don't trust Marquette at all. I like Murray State a lot, but I don't know, 80 or 90% of this prediction, I just don't trust Marquette. I don't know what kind of Marquette team we're going to get. And I'm not willing to roll the dice. I said I'm willing to roll the dice on which Cincinnati team we're, we're going to get. In that first round game against Iowa, and then in the second round versus Tennessee, I'm not willing to trust and roll a dice on Marquette. I do not trust them to make the in-game adjustments. I also think Matt McMahon from Murray State is just a hell of a coach. I know Morant gets all the love on the court for the Racers, but McMahon, he's the next up guy in that Racers coaching factor. If he leaves, and I think he will leave, I don't know if it's going to be this year, next year, or the year after that, but he's built up a pretty... I guess I don't want to say he's built up the program, but he's kept it where the guys before him have brought it, where Mick Cronin was, Billy Kennedy, Steve Prohm. So if he leaves, he'll be the fourth straight coach to leave. I don't know if he's going to leave this year. I don't see any obvious fits. 
Then again, Billy Kennedy going down to Texas A&M wasn't an obvious fit. Um, Mick Cronin and Steve Pro made a little bit more sense geographically where they went, but I don't know if he's going to leave this year. I don't see any obvious fits for him. We're not really sure which high major jobs are even going to be open. Let's do a couple more. Give me... Let's go up to the East. Give me Yale over LSU. I think the Tigers are just rattled. Those last few minutes of the the SEC tournament loss were so bizarre, and they're kind of sticking with me that I'm not going to trust them at all. And then I also have Liberty over Mississippi State in the East. I don't really want to pick them. I am actively rooting against them after that flop in the ASUN title game because it was so bad. And I know I don't want to want to hold his flop over all of Liberty, but that flop was so bad that I don't want them to win. But I am going to pick them over Mississippi State. I think they drew a great matchup there. And I think depending on what Virginia Tech looks like with their uh, full health, I think that could be another decent matchup, Liberty versus Virginia Tech. Uh, a little bit of emotions running there in Virginia. So some of the higher seeds, let, let's go back. Some of the higher seeds that I have losing before next weekend. So losing this weekend, I have Mississippi State going down, like I said, to Liberty. I have LSU losing. I have Florida State losing. I have Tennessee losing, like I said, in Kentucky. I can't – one game that I've gone back and forth on a lot. I can't figure this this game out. I mentioned 12-5. There's 16-24. Uh, that being 12 seeds. There's 16-24 versus the five in the last 10 years, and I've gone back and forth in this Auburn-New Mexico game a lot. I don't know who to pick. I think it's a decent matchup for them. I think whoever wins is going to give Kansas a hell of a lot of trouble if they get past Northeastern. I think, you know, people have talked about this a little bit. KU got extremely lucky with that Midwest draw, but they have just terrible first and second round matchups. Northeastern's going to give them a lot of trouble outside the arc. Auburn would do the same if they get through. They actually struggled with New Mexico State at the Sprint Center earlier this season. Um, so I've gone back and forth on Auburn, New Mexico State. I am be- picking KU to beat Northeastern in a close one. I have not picked Auburn, New Mexico State. I'm leaning toward an upset right now in New Mexico State, but I'm going to have to come back to that one. And you know what? Let's One thing quickly here. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself going back out west. But if we can get Vermont-Gonzaga in the Sweet 16, I'm going to take Vermont. That's a matchup that I just really selfishly want to see because I think it could be an interesting game between those two offenses. I really want to see that matchup, however unlikely it would be. But if we do get Gonzaga and Vermont out west in the Sweet 16, I am going to take Vermont. And then right now I'm leaning toward Michigan, uh, like I said, uh, down from that two seed. So I would have Vermont and Michigan. If that were to be the case with Vermont and Gonzaga in the Sweet 16, I'd have Vermont and Michigan in the Elite Eight and then taking Michigan to go to the Final Four. All right, let's call it here on the High Motor Podcast. Thanks again to Matt Langle and Chase Kitty for stopping by. I'm going to be back next week with more tourney talk. Hopefully we can grab a Sweet 16 coach for that show. Enjoy the weekend of hoops. you got 32 games in four days coming up. Thanks for listening to the High Motor Podcast on the Hero Sports Podcast Network. I saw a friend today. It had been a while. And we forgot each other's names. But it didn't matter cause deep inside The feeling still remained the same We talked of knowing one before you've met And how you feel more than you see And other worlds that lie in spaces in